Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder, a founder that has been there, has done it, is now on the other side of the table and at one point he was actually operating one of the fastest growing companies in the U.S. We're going to be talking about hypergrowth entrepreneurs, also capital, you know, how you go about that, raising it, you know, category creation tool, uh, and then also creating a high-performance culture amongst many, many things. But Again, what we have today is a very inspiring conversation. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Tim Shigel. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Pleasure being here. So give us a, a little bit of a walk through memory lane here. How was growing up in Cleveland? Great memories. I came from a very large family, large ethnic family, uh, 36 cousins on my mother's side. My dad was in uh, Vietnam and worked in the steel mills. And I even worked in the steel mill for a summer. and. Uh, uh, so we had a uh, large family surrounded by a lot of music. I also play guitar. I have a lot of musicians in our family. And, uh, yeah, it was great. So at what point do you get into engineering, problem solving? My dad was technical. He was, elect- he was an electrician, uh, never went to college, but was very smart, knew how to fix TVs, radios, cars. And, uh, I had good grades. I could have gone into anything, uh, you know, uh, as a guitar player, I was also a bit of a gadget person, as a lot of guitar players are. We, you know, we, we love to work with all our gadgets and toys and music and sound. And so uh, I knew the one thing I knew was that and I wish young kids knew this. I knew the world was going to be more technically or technology driven in the future. And, that I, you know, that was pretty simple to understand. Right. And I didn't know what I was going to do for a job. I had no, no clue. But I knew electrical engineering degree, you know, a good engineering degree was going to suit me well. And so what I tell my kids, what I've told others is just get your degree, get a good, strong education, and then you'll see where you go from there. And electrical engineering is great. It can take you a lot of places. Uh, I actually started a curriculum between the Cleveland Institute of Music and the Case School of Engineering, where we were doing some of the earliest digital music production. So that was just kind of my hobby and passion, which, which led to my first job, actually. That's amazing. I mean, your first job, I mean, let, let's just say, too, that you were the first one there, one of the first in the family to go to university. So making your parents proud, you know, that's incredible. Now, let's talk about finishing university. So when you finished university, you basically joined this company that was very close to Apple. So you were able to have access to innovation. You know, at that time, you know, Apple, you know, incredible, the, the kind of stuff that they were rolling out. Uh, but I guess in, in, in your case, how did that transition into VC? Because here you are, you know, corporate, you know, stable job, you know, you're seeing cool stuff, you know, around innovation and making the shift to the venture world. How did that happen? Well, first I made the shift from being a technical person uh, and um, to, to being more on the customer facing side of business. Uh, I was building, you know, at the time we were working um, large enterprises that were using Macintosh computers and we were developing applications in HyperCard that were networked with VAX mini computers. So at the time, this is pre, you know, pre Windows, pre networking. Um, so very innovative. Um, the the small company I worked for, one of the founders went to Stanford, and so his friends were at Apple, and we became one of the two 
leading companies that Apple would turn to to do custom software development for their largest customers. So that included Procter & Gamble, uh, GE, Hallmark Greeting Cards, Mayo Clinic, um, Hughes Communications, many others. So we, I, I was literally in Newton, Massachusetts with John Scully with the launch of the Newton, the first handheld PDA, because we developed the showcase application for Monsanto to to basically do um, tracking for 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 bugs and, and stuff like that for farming for precision farming. So um, that exposure to the West Coast, I was out on the West Coast a lot, out in Silicon Valley a lot, and uh, that's where I became aware of venture capital, and thought that was something that I would be really interested in because I'm just naturally curious and I I love the amount of uh, variety that exists when you're in venture capital. And it's, as I always say, uh, in the world of venture capital, it's kind of like living in the future, right? You're, you're often seeing technologies and ideas and concepts that may not come to the broad market for 10 or 15 years. So, so, so how do you all of a sudden jump to VC? Well, I was actually, that was a good question because my, my choice was I thought either I would go to Harvard Business School and get into a venture firm or run a company and get to know the investors and, and you know, have success and they would hire me. And so that's the path I went down. I started an internet company in the early 90s and um, along the way was raising money. And the company um, ultimately was, you know, failed, didn't get very far before it failed, but the venture firm wanted to hire me. So the plan worked, not exactly the way I thought it would, but it worked. Uh, I was uh, 31 years old at the time. Uh, the firm was Blue Chip Venture Company. It was the first in Cincinnati, one of the largest in the Midwest. We had four funds, $600 million under management. And um, that, was, that was my start. And I always thought, I always thought I'd have to move to Silicon Valley or Boston to get into venture. I didn't even know there was a venture capital firm in Cincinnati. I just lived in Cincinnati. I worked all over the world. I, was, I used to do some projects in Asia. I was going to Asia once a month. I've, I've, you know, I've been all over Europe, Saudi Arabia, the West Coast, the East Coast. I was raped, but I was raising my family and lived in Cincinnati. And the fact that I met a venture capital firm that happened to be in Cincinnati was a complete surprise. Now, obviously, you're in venture again, so we're going to talk about that. But on this first go at it, you know, you were for nine years and you actually invested in some really interesting companies, like, for example, advertising.com. Uh, and, uh, and, and that was sold to AOL. It's it's very interesting, you know, this time that that you were really investing because you had the opportunity of experiencing the dot-com bubble and the dot-com bust, so really the cycles. So what did you learn from that, perhaps, experience, from those cycles that you saw, from all these companies that you were investing in, that perhaps you could share with the founders that are listening now as to how to embrace what's coming? Yeah, I'm a yeah, great, great question. I'm a big believer after going through that, that, you know, the rule of thumb is it takes 10 years to learn venture. And I believe that's still true. Even though company cycles are faster, there are just so many different ways to succeed and so many different ways to fail. And um, you learn the most from the failures. Uh, so having uh, the time and as well as going through the cycles, you know, the, the up and down cycles where um, at the beginning, when I joined, everything was up. You know, first company I worked on, we f funded it, uh, started it, went public, was worth several billion dollars. I thought this is easy, and then it wasn't easy, <laughs> right? When the when the when the bubble burst, 
Um, I was definitely probably uh, cockier or more confident in myself in the early days, you know, being on boards of companies. Uh, and um, I always say my bookshelves when I was younger, my bookshelves were filled with technology books. Now they're filled with psychology books. Because wow. the biggest limiting factor is not technology, right? Everybody has access to technology. Technology has been democratized. Um, but getting you know, people to be aligned to do what needs to be done and getting them to want to do what needs to be done is extremely hard. And um, there are interesting dynamics, uh, both within companies as well as in the board. So like, for example, one of the biggest lessons I learned with the board is it's kind of ridiculous that you raise money and investors spend a bunch of time doing due diligence and um, they get together four or five times a year for a board meeting where everybody flies in and flies out and plays armchair quarterback. This is supposed to be kind of the strategic decision-making body for the company, yet those people probably have never worked together, right? It's a group that really is not very well aligned and people have different motivations. They're their motivations are driven by their fund cycles, when they're raising money, when they need to exit. And that is very difficult for a CEO, especially a new CEO, to navigate that. So one of the things I like to do when I started Refinery, for example, after, right after we invest, is do a little bit of baseline getting to know you with the other board members and talk about what they've seen their successes are and what their failures are. Because oftentimes what you'll hear in the board meetings is, you know, a, a board member may be pounding the table on some topic. And you're like, why is this person so upset about, you know, this thing? And you find out they're upset about it because they got burned by it in the past. Hmm. Totally unrelated to the current company, but they, they're, they're still smarting from something that happened in the past. And so when you share those things, those underlying kind of assumptions that people all bring to the table, you find that the group starts to be able to work better. So just understanding how to navigate board dynamics and, um, is really important. It's not about being the smartest person in the room. It's not about the person that, it's not about being the one who talks the most. You know, some of the best board members that I work with were also some of the quietest. But when they did speak up or when they did speak up is usually a question that led to a whole new interesting um, discussion, you know, from there. Now, as you were saying, it takes a decade to learn the ropes when it comes to venture capital. And you were there. But in 2007, things took a different path. And there was an idea that came knocking. And you decided to take action. And you switched the side of the table. Now we share this. Tell us about this. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned advertising.com. So that was one of the largest ad tech, early ad tech companies out there. A very fast-growing company. I was you know, there at the board from the very beginning and got to, to witness all of it. And because of that and several other media tech investments we made, we had really good deal flow on the media tech side. Um, I started, I'm a big fan of complexity theory uh, and uh, things like genetic algorithms and you know early days of mach machine learning. And um, I had this idea that um, people, people were going to start navigating information in different ways. They don't find out information from search. They find information from links that people share with each other, right? And I realized every day I share links with people, people share links with me, and that's how I discover new information. I'm not doing discovery in search. Search is more hunting. I know what I want, right? And um, 
being inspired by genetic algorithms, I reached out to the guy who wrote the book on genetic algorithms, Dr. David Goldberg, who was at University of Illinois. And I came to him and I said, what if we could create something? I called it at the time, the consumer chromosome. That was your unique ID based on your searching and uh, your, your uh, navigation on the web and the sharing. And so we created the company and ultimately realized that the sharing behavior was the thing. There was nobody I could find on the internet, Google, Netscape, Yahoo, AOL. Nobody could answer the question, what do people share? And how often do they share it? So we were the first ones to recognize that. And um, we launched uh, at, as uh, it was a, one of the first JavaScript based widgets on a website. And we launched in November uh, 2007 as a plugin, it was a WordPress plugin. And the goal was to have 200 websites install this little JavaScript plugin in the first two months, so by the end of the year. And with the very first blog post we did, we had a thousand websites install it within the first week. My God. And I said, oh, okay, we just, that was like lightning in a bottle. And it never slowed down, ever. And that's, I learned an important lesson in some of that journey, which is the importance of distribution. That distribution got so big and the nature of networks and distribution is the bigger it gets, the bigger it gets. I mean, the network it's, effects are real, you know, or something yeah. like that, but the, also the growth is like uh, out of control. I mean, how do you, how do you keep up with the, with that level of growth as well? So that things don't break. Now things do break. I think that's one of the things to understand about, about growth, about fast growth is it could be managed chaos. And, that, that growth could be going from zero to 10 million, 10 million to 100 million or 100 million to billion. I think, I think there's, a, uh, there's something about growth itself, uh, especially when, you're, uh, when it's something that is kind of grabbing a lot of market share quickly that has its own dynamic. And so we went from the first year we had 700,000 in revenue and the second year we had 12 million. My God. And the next year, 30 something. So uh, it, it, it was a bit of chaos and there are a bunch of lessons in that, you know, you had to, uh, there were some people that worked great, you know, that, that, that were, were awesome in terms of their contribution for the first million. But when things got to scale, they weren't, you know, very few people can make it from each step. And so, um, you had to continually adjust to that. And it dawned on me, my, my big learning on that, uh, dawned on me in one of those early cycles when I looked around and I thought most of the people that work here have never worked in a high growth company. When I thought about where they came from, they were used to, they get their job, they get a function, they get their title and their name and they get a desk and a cubicle and they want to hang out with their friends and life's pretty comfortable growing at 10% a year or 20% a year or whatever. When you're growing at hundreds or thousands of percent a year, it can be very destabling for people. And that puts a premium on the leader, the CEO, to communicate and make sure everybody knows their roles and revisit that often because it's often changing. And um, once you under, understand that, it starts to get a little bit e easier to navigate. Uh, but it's if you have never been in that environment as, as a manager or leader, it can be a big challenge. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, 
you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. And how much, uh, how much I mean, obviously that, that, that growth is absolutely crazy. How did you guys go about capitalizing the business as well? Well, we raised our Series A from Draper Fisher um, and it was the the lead was Emily Melton, who now is the founding invest founding uh, partner at Threshold Ventures. Uh, we raised that, closed that round at March, basically March first of two thousand eight, uh, basically a week before the Great Recession started. We were still pre revenue. Uh, what was interesting is we raised we had a lot of interest because of the distribution it was growing so fast, but we were still pre revenue. And we raised $15 million at a $60 million valuation in 2008. Um, so that's pretty incredible, even in today's standards. And I remember thinking, the moment we closed it, our job now is to not spend it. Literally, like it wasn't like, hey, we got all this money. Let's go spend it. Let's go hire a bunch of people. Our job was to not spend it. Uh, the, the Great Recession was starting. We had no idea how long it was going to last. We kept our burn rate very low. I don't remember exactly what the number was, but it was probably under 200,000 or something like that. Um, and we said, we're going to keep it low until we start generating revenue, is, until we have some visibility, right, in terms of that, that income and cash flow. And uh, so that was the first important lesson. Yeah, we, we raised it, but we're not going to spend it. Second thing was um, I developed a point of view on what I called test revenue versus scale revenue. So that first $700,000 in revenue, you know, we would generate revenue and I'd come to board meetings. I say, hey, we generated revenue last month, but I'm not even going to report on it. It wasn't very much. Don't worry about it. What I was optimizing for was not revenue growth. I was optimizing for learning. That first million or so, you want a, a variety of different customers. You want to understand the ROI of your product. You want to understand pricing of your product. You want to understand how you go to market. So you optimize for learning, not optimize for growth. And this is a mistake I think that happens often with seed to series A stage companies is that they get a lot of pressure from their investors to grow the second the revenue starts. And that promotes bad behavior. 
They're trying to do whatever it can to make that number grow versus just trying to learn, try to figure out good, you know, what, what's a profile of a good customer, what today they call ICP, a deal customer profile, and what's a bad customer. So oftentimes your first customers, some of them are not good customer profiles. Like if you had to do it again, you would not want them as a customer, not because they're bad, but just because you can't scale them. You can't find others like them. So there's this dynamic of that test revenue. And we had enough test revenue to then predict when we started to go into scale, how we could scale. And in our case, we, we aimed to do 10 million the next year, which sounded outrageous. Uh, and um, it, it was, but since we raised so much money, we kind of had to grow. We had a big valuation. We had to grow fast. And I knew that. So I did the test revenue knowing that I had to get the data points to know I could with confidence say we can scale fast. Because if we did four or five million in revenue, it still would have been great. But it would have been, we would have gotten kind of the golf clap from the investors because they put in so much money at a high valuation. So we set the plan to 10 million and what we achieved was 12. Hmm. And I remember one of my friends and advisors and investors I called him all excited and said, hey, you know, we were going to do 10 million this year, but we did 12. And his first reaction was, why not 15? <laughs> and I was, I was so mad at him. But I'm like, that's the right question. Right? That's the right question. What's limiting? Why not 15? What's the, what is the limiting factor? If you can go from 700,000 to 12, why not 15? Right. And so I try to take that view and, and help our, you know, companies we invest in take that view. We're looking at companies. You know, the, Think of think of growth as not not like pushing something uphill, but it's it's how do you remove constraints? How do you remove friction? So so let's let's talk about that because um, after this time, you know, I share this, you know, incredible uh, growth experience. Eventually, you become the chairman, and then you start what you're up to now, which is called Refinery Ventures. So it's interesting because you go from investor to entrepreneur to investor again, and typically. What I've seen is entrepreneurs, they either become investors or investors that become entrepreneurs, they keep being entrepreneurs. So in your case, you went back to the other side of the table. What, what triggered that? Well, there was one media, one step in the middle. Uh, when I went to chairman, that's when this thing in Cincinnati started called Centrifuge. And it was started by the leaders in town to create um, uh, a stronger venture-backed startup it, uh, ecosystem. And the uh, senior leadership at Procter & Gamble asked if I would set up a fund of funds to invest in other funds to kind of create relationships with them in our region. And at first, I thought that sounded boring. That was way too far away from the action. <laughs> and I talked to my friend Chris Reisick, who's the founder of Renaissance Fund in Michigan. And they, we wanted to have a similar model. And he kind of talked me into it. I said, oh, you could help everybody a lot. Uh, and um, so I did that, which was really interesting. So I've worn three hats. I've been, you know, the CEO entrepreneur hat. I've worn the GP hat, and I also have worn the LP hat. So I did due diligence on over 200 venture funds. We've invested in about 25 people like Graycroft, Lear Hippo Ventures, Bullpen, Bold Start, Upfront Ventures, Pelion Ventures, a lot of great firms. And um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. The question you're bringing up, people would ask me often, do you want to run a company again or do a venture firm? And I, my honest answer was I didn't know. And I kind of embraced that and said, when I did the fund of funds, I was kind of in discovery mode, which I think is important. A lot of people face that in their careers. And it's okay to be in discovery mode. 
Um, at the end of the day, I think I'm a problem solver. Just like when I saw the sharing problem and saw the opportunity that nobody addressed. Um, what happened in that discovery period is I found this issue that most of the entrepreneurs, 90 plus percent of the entrepreneurs I would meet in the Midwest had never worked in a high growth company. And to me, that is the fundamental constraining factor. P entrepreneurs would often say, there's not enough venture capital in this region. And I, my answer is that's true, but that's not the problem. Because of what I call the first law, which is capital follows growth. If you're growing three to five X a year, you can get investors from anywhere. And what's interesting about this, th this is true, I think, outside of anywhere outside of Silicon Valley or the New England area, right? But I'm in the Great Lakes area. So if you look at the Great Lakes area, um, I looked at the seed, number of seed deals per year, and it was equivalent to the New England area. But the New England area raised four times more money than the Great Lakes area did. What does that mean? Well, if you go a little deeper, it doesn't mean that the seed rounds are bigger. It means they have more B rounds and C rounds, which means companies were progressing, whereas in Great Lakes, they weren't progressing. Well, that's interesting, right? Because we have all these great universities, Carnegie Mellon, you know, top of the list, University of Michigan, Ohio State, Case Western, Purdue, University of Cincinnati, you know, the list goes on. We have a lot of great universities. So what's happening? Well, what's happening is the companies aren't, aren't evolving from seed to series A. They're not making that jump and they're falling into kind of common traps and not generating the growth. So when I realized that most of these entrepreneurs had never had that growth experience, that's when the light bulb went off for me. And I said, wow, what if I, what if I started a firm and address that stage, which I call early scale? The mistake people make is they get a little bit of product market fit and then they want to just dump money in and scale it. Well, they have no, they have no, um, baseline of what their unit economics are for acquiring customers, et cetera. So the important thing you need to do in a cost-efficient way, capital-efficient way, is to figure out how you go to market, and that's what I call early scale. So we focus on a stage. We help entrepreneurs that don't have the growth experience get through that. But on top of that, we recruit, we recruit and build a network of entrepreneurs that have that hyper-growth experience, that are in the Midwest or that are boomerangs, people that worked on the coast and want to come back. And we launch companies or we pull companies out of universities where we partner up the technicians, the scientists with the hypergrowth entrepreneur. That idea for me was super intriguing, is a long-term idea. If we can change that, it can change the landscape and the complexion of the entire region and many regions around the world, quite frankly. And it's a, it's a talent-first talent um, approach. I mean, obviously creating ecosystem there, which is fantastic, no? Now, in your guys' case, you know, you have right now in assets under management about 55 spread across two funds, you know, more coming. Uh, and you've invested in companies like Astronomer, where you were one of the early investors and now they've raised over 300 million, which is incredible. I guess, imagine, Tim, you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of refinery is fully realized. What does that world look like? What that looks like is that many of the technologies that we use on a day-to-day -day basis uh, find their homes in places like Ohio and Indiana and Michigan and Kentucky and Pennsylvania. And that those companies are creating the flywheel of other companies, other spin-outs. Uh, it 
is, you know, I, I believe technology and talent are no longer tethered to geography. Right. Um, right now, what has been for most of my career is if you think you're a tech pioneer, you move to the West Coast, right? Because that's the only place you can go do what you need to do. And if you move out there, you kind of feel like it's you're entitled to change the world. Um, and I didn't move out there because I did not want to sacrifice the lifestyle and the family dynamic I had, where I had you know, three kids that were like junior high at the time, uh, great community, great family. I did not want to sacrifice that just for my career. And so you could have built a great company and have great family and live the lifestyle you want to live in the, in the place you want to live um, and still achieve all your dreams. And that hasn't been true for decades, but I think it's, it's in the future, it's going to be more likely true um, wherever you decide to build your company. No, 100% on that. Fully subscribe. Now, we're talking about the future here, but I want to talk about the past. And I want to do that, Tim, with a lens of reflection. I'm going to put you in a time machine right now, and I bring you back in time. It's 2007. You're about to give your notice at the VC firm that you've been at for nine years. And you're going into the unknown with this new company. That would end up becoming Share This, your first venture ultimately, you know, like real hyper-growth venture. And let's say that uh, you were able to stop that younger team that was coming out of the VC firm after giving the notice and sitting that younger self and being able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Great question. I was just thinking about that this morning when, I, you know, when we launched it. I had no idea what was going to happen. Right, that, that, that this growth was there. I was confident that I was very confident we were solving a problem others weren't focused on. That was a very large problem. You know, a lot of everybody on the internet shares content, and um, so I had high confidence in that. The probably the biggest lesson, and then what I would have told myself at the time, is uh, people want to be led, including boards including your investors. I, I probably was, um, you know, too eager to build consensus, uh, too eager to have, you know, harmony. I, I, I believe in having healthy tension now, you know, um, uh, this was a concept that came from me. It didn't come from somewhere else. I created the concept and, um, the growth from that uh, ensued. But what, what happens is I think um, you have some, you know, you've heard the phrase success has many fathers, right? So, so everybody starts wanting to, to, to take credit or think that, you know, their contribution was greater than it was or whatever. And um, uh, I would have, I would have held on more tightly. You know, I was, I was, I was trusting, uh, of folks and and kind of probably naive to all the different dynamics that might have been going on. I my the vision for what the company could be or could have been uh, was bigger than it became. Uh, but my time my time with it was basically cut short, and it was because I was I was I was trying to do the right thing, you know, by everybody, kind of make everybody happy. 
instead of, you know, really surrounding myself with advisors that were concerned about me. Right. Everybody else was concerned about their interests and except they weren't concerned about my interests. Right. And, um, I would have found more advisors and kept advisors around me to help me navigate that. Wow. I love that, Tim. So for the people that are listening, all these founders, especially that are incredibly inspired, you know, after listening here and, and I would like to reach out and say, hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, easy. Just Tim at refinery.com. So R-E-F-I-N-E-R-Y.com. That'd be great. Love Amazing. to hear from you. Is enough, Tim. Well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Yeah, this was fun. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.